Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your weekend sports cars. I don't know what we call this, Graham Goodwin. It, it's not the <laughs> listener Q&A show this week, or at least no. for the first two episodes we're going to do this week. Yes. But we're coming out of the uh, 24 Hours of Le Mans here in the good old United States of America. Very angry to report I did not have my favorite hate watch and hate listen opportunity <laughs> with uh, Eurosport as the comms on uh, Motor Trend Television. Indeed, it was you and it Martin Haven and, and other people. It's your fun. So, pissed at you. Why did you take <laughs> away my annual uh, hate watch uh, love fest? Uh, so, again, holding a grudge here, but nonetheless, kidding okay. aside. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different here. Uh, we have struggled in recent weeks. I am to blame for that, to be consistent. No, you're not to blame. Yes. Hey, it, I'm, it's my name on things. Therefore, the blame goes to me. Uh, we've struggled to do the weekend sports cars consistently. That's going to get fixed immediately. We're not going to go straight into uh, what I've I've been told, Graham, is yeah. we're at best the number two uh, fan interaction oh, sports car show. Yeah, apparently. No. There, oh, there's some others who just we need to bow and scrape because they're just the best and they've been doing it forever. And, you know, oh, uh, so okay. anyways, uh, maybe we're number three. We could be number 10. We're definitely not number one. But nonetheless, we're not going to do the Q's and the A's. We're just going to do the A's this week. I'm going should, to should make, ask. Should make clear, we are going to be back to Q's. Oh, yes. Yes. Week, but a little bit of a be. getting back on form. Uh, going to ask Graham a ton of questions about 24 hours of Lamont, of which he will answer them. And then we're going to do maybe tomorrow, who knows, maybe Friday, yep. bit of a news catch up. Cause that's also something yep. we cover quite and regularly. And there's been tons. Yes, there's been a lot. And then next week we're going to get back to our regular, the weekend sports cars, listener Q and a, you send in the cues. We answer them on occasion with useful knowledge even. So I, I think knowledge is a good one. Useful. I can't, I can't guarantee that, but knowledge can know uh, the well, ledge. Actually, can't, can't guarantee that either, but, uh, but we'll, we'll have a crack. So crack being something that is used quite frequently on this show. Uh, let's say a big thank you as always to you, Graham, uh, to our listeners. Uh, seriously, we do this for y'all. I mean, we don't really like each other. We wouldn't speak like if it weren't for the yeah. show. We, we got divorced many years ago, but uh, big thank you as always to Cooper tires the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. So why don't we just kick off here, Graham? I am the <laughs> I'm the pitcher and you're the catcher, and Ooh. we're not going to explore that statement at all. Uh, but we are going to break down the 2022, 24 hours of Le Mans. Why don't we begin with fans and energy and orange smoke bombs and all the kind of fun things that make Le Mans truly one of the world's greatest sporting events. I wasn't there. You were, you've been through COVID and all the changes and oddities there. Tell folks what it was like, Graham, just experiencing all the great people who helped yeah. fill the grandstands and even pit lane. Uh, well, first things first, it is great to be back. Uh, it was one heck of a week last week, and we were there for more than a week with first the DSC, the Daily Sports Car Crew, and then with uh, ACO TV, part of the international feed. And we'll get, I'm sure, to that a little bit later. But boy, oh boy, oh boy, was it good to be back to very much closer to normality. 
Um, ACO say there were 244,000 people there through the weekend. I have a traditional distrust of official figures, but I can tell you there was a decent crowd back. Uh, I spent a little bit of time during the race just pottering about uh, behind the grandstand where the uh, the cell um, stands are, looking for stuff for the windowsill collection. Um, and it was just great to be back with with people around. They There's always a race. There has been a race all the way through, but they make it an event. They make it that. Uh, whether or not it's, you know, the general population just milling around and just taking it all in, whether or not it's the craziness of the groups, particularly of guys, but um, yeah, increasingly lots more families, by the way. There are lots more couples there uh, than uh, in the relatively recent past. It's become more of a family event, and that, I think, is only going to make it a good thing as things go forward. It seemed to me as well to be a younger event. Uh, the music and the traditional Friday night concert was of the, how can I put this, dance and techno variety. I recognised a couple of the tunes, Marshall, but I, I can tell you it's not the foot tappers I'm used to from the 70s and 80s, but it was great to see that and hear that as well. Um, just all round a really good, friendly vibe around the whole event moved a million miles away from the weirdness that was 2020 with no fans on site and the very restricted numbers we saw back in 2021. And we, I talked about it with a, a bunch of people through the week. Uh, that means my colleagues in the press room, my colleagues in the TV compound, some of the race organizers, the team, some of our guests we had across the TV. And the thing that everybody said was the default setting for, with, for people was a smile. It was pretty sunny throughout. We did have a little bit of rain because it always rains at Le Mans, of course. Uh, we had a bit of rain uh, in, the, in the week before, but uh, not a drop for the race proper. It was great to be back to the event that draws us back every time. Um, so as an event, putting aside the racing, and we'll get to that, um, it was back where it needed to be as a starting point for what comes next year. Amen to that. Also provide a timely update that our cat Rocky just jumped over my shoulder, bumped Excellent. into the microphone, walked around. He's now climbed onto the back of my chair and right. is licking my hair. Lovely. I, I mean, whereas I've got, uh, I've got Oscar the dog, by the way, who suddenly, after living here for... Uh, getting on towards um, two years now, I suddenly realised that it's cooler in the heat of the day down at this end of the garden. I'm in the office at the bottom of the garden. Um, I suddenly realised it's cooler down here after sitting more or less in the, not quite to the full glare of the sun. It's a beautiful day here, just on the outskirts of London, um, but certainly not in the coolest part of the garden. He suddenly realised, why have I done that? So the daft old dog is at the moment uh, literally upside down outside the office door. Yeah. That is your uh, Week in Sports Cars weekly pet update. Uh, why go. don't we return to uh, good old Le Mans, uh, one word, as some folks like to, uh, to use. Yes. Let's talk about the really boring nothing to uh, discuss opening lap, Graham Goodwin. Oh, good uh, grief. Good Lord. Uh, why don't you tell us about the opposite of an orderly start to 24 hours of racing? Well, well t two 
notable incidents to report on that one. One of which was the, um, how do we put this? Three cars wide in a space that really wasn't wide enough even for two in a completely unnecessary incident involving two of the WRT cars and one of the United Autosport cars, which effectively spoiled the race for all three. They, they, uh, they did fight back up the order. Two of the cars involved were two of the cars that, so in fact, I think it might have been, yeah, both the WRT cars uh, that were involved in that uh, one ended up nutting the barrier uh, with, unfortunately, with Robin Frines at the wheel after a spectacular run from him. But just the, the overarching feeling of that was, that was a downright stupid incident, um, where the United car, the 22 car, effectively out of the running from that point forward. It was a fight back from, from that car. Uh, the 31, the 41 cars, the real team racing car uh, by WRT and the, the uh, 31 car from WRT delayed again and getting a penalty as a result of that. Just... Uh, it's it, it spoiled what could have been an even better race in LMP2. And it set up a situation where the 38 car from Jota effectively dominated that race. Sort of from there on in, it, it, it delayed and... Well, delayed didn't eliminate, but delayed three of the possible co competitors to... You know, one of the other super team cars. Also, by the way, and it's something I'm going to be writing up in the next kind of 24, 48 hours. Uh, got a call from Stuart Cox. Now, I don't think Stuart's someone you've ever met, Marshall, but Stewie is part of the husband and wife team at Algarve Pro Racing. Stewie, on our broadcast and on others, reported that they'd had this weird um, problem with a gearbox actuator which stopped the. I want to say it's the 47, it is the 47 car on the very opening lap. Sophia Flersch, German female driver at the wheel of that car. And that uh, it's appeared to be the heat, possibly because the safety car at the start of the race was lapping very slowly. That was noticeable. And that gearbox actuator had effectively been fried because of increased heat. God bless him. Uh, in a unique occurrence, Stewie rang me. Uh, to say he was terribly sorry that there'd been misinformation there. They'd, they'd looked into this, and actually it was a failure in team process that had caused this, a miscommunication um, uh, around the gearbox actuator being changed. Duck, by um, the way, it sounds like I a know plane. Is, uh, it sounds like you're a, being buzzed. It's a strafing run. Ah. Um, uh, but it basically, cut long story short, there is a rule within the team that parts do not go on the car in the race unless they've been proven over testing and practice. That was not the case in this instance. And a brand new part failed on the car because uh, that, that the internal team process was not complete. It was not completed satisfactorily. He's gutted. He feels because he's the responsible guy is his fault. Uh, he has spoken to each with three drivers um, and explain that, and uh, God bless her, I had Sophia Flersch on the phone for an hour earlier uh, to talk about her race, we'll read about that one later this week, and it's fair to say that whilst frustrated, she was uh, blown away by the honesty that uh, that team brought to it. Their other car, by the way, came home to win in LMP 2 Am. it could have been 1-2. Uh, the, the, the amount of time that team made up, I think they... Uh, therefore effectively started the race six laps down 
finished the lap the race three laps down so they gained three laps back on the overall lmp2 race leaders uh let alone the lmp2m race leaders could have been could have would have should have but it just goes to show that there are people out there uh to whom their reputation uh within their own team and that paddock matters a bit more than a soundbite and i have to say i was blown away by the level of honesty and for that matter upset that was uh, involved in that, that conversation, that call. Oh, cool. Why don't we move on to the TV side a little bit, Graham? So sure. the whole Eurosport Motor Trend TV here in the States, Yeah. knowing that uh, you're having a bigger slice of world communications to deliver, what was that like? Uh, you did get yeah. a question from some idiot here uh, in the States uh, complaining about a, a utter lack of Bentley blower discussions. So, I mean, uh, really the worst coverage I've ever seen, uh, strictly because of the lack of continuation of Chris Parsons, mighty fine rambling about nonsense that nobody cares about. So really, truly massive thumbs down. Uh, Well, I can tell you this. Um, so we, we knew relatively recently that the, uh, world feed would be taken by, uh, well, amongst others, Eurosport, Stan, I think, in down in, down under in Australia, um, by Motor Trend on Demand because it's obviously part of the Discovery Network. Uh, there's a little bit of, of uh, cable coverage here in the UK and around the world, wherever uh, they take English language coverage. Eurosport did have kind of opt out parts of that that uh, broadcast, uh, so there was a, a kind of a, another crew which involved, amongst others, Tom Christensen doing a variety of interview uh, 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 you know, outputs for, through the broadcast. In terms of the way it affects the way we run the show, all it means is we, we get counted into Eurosport breaks and counted out of Eurosport breaks. There's a little bit of disjointedness there and a little bit of sound quality issues in terms of those counts. So if we did crash the odd break, I apologize to people that uh, listened into it. But And it does disjoint the flow at times. But... Um, genuinely it's otherwise than that other than that the same show you otherwise would get and yeah we had uh, a great crew with uh, martin haven who heads up the wc tv crew uh, in charge again uh, with myself and with ben constant doing uh, the lead commentary that's playing in my case a bit of analysis as well and then three ex-drivers with uh, jasmine jafar uh, the malaysian xwc um race winner has raced at Le Mans with Jota was actually their nominated reserve driver this year um the super silky skills of Peter and Breck back again with us uh for about for the fifth time I think on that broadcast and the new addition that we've had all all year this year on the WC TV crew and somebody's proven to be extremely popular with the audience and that's Ant Davidson and Ant I thought was spellbindingly good uh in terms of his depth of knowledge, etc. A, a galaxy of guests over to talk to us, including uh, for night practice, the fascinating accidental combo of um, Multimatic retained driver, and in this case, Proton um, uh, Dempsey Proton race driver, Harry Tinknell, and his ex-boss, IMSA president, John Doonan. Mm. Uh, and that was good fun, good knockabout stuff um, from both of them, you know, with all sorts of stuff in the mix about what might be coming for IMSA, what might be coming for um, HT, uh, and hopefully good things there. 
but it, it felt a good broadcast. Um, it's never perfect. It's never exactly what everybody wants. And for anybody that didn't enjoy it or didn't enjoy Martin Haven and my 4am ramblings about uh, otter cafes in Tokyo and cake flavored potato chips, I do apologize. Uh, it's not blow Bentley's, but it's the best we could do with the sleep deprivation we'd had at that point. Um, but I will tell you this is that we did have some senior management for, from Discovery Eurosports uh, in and talking to us about the kind of feedback that they've got and they they had, and that at that stage was pretty darn good. Um, I'm not always proud of everything I do professionally. You know that the pole dancing career came to a to an end in distressing circumstances, uh, but I'm proud of that one, and I'm delighted uh, that uh, the technical staff and the senior management we had on site seemed to be. Kind of equally pleased about it. I don't know what feedback you've had. We've not put out questions uh, this week, but certainly as part of my contractual obligations to that broadcast, I do monitor multiple social media networks, and I think it went down pretty well. Hoping that your uh, your Twitter profile also gained a lot of. A lot of followers as well. It was nice to see you, or to see, I should say, here, but uh, nice to see your uh, your presentation style in something I would say is crafted in a group of full-time professionals compared to the Eurosport collection, which I think other than maybe Mark Cole uh, feels has always felt like a bunch of folks who were just kind of yanked off the street uh, so it was just good to have quality embedded encyclopedic knowledge plus some of the fun that you were having. Um, <clears throat> yeah, nothing. I think that part of it. There. I think that part of it. That part of it is important. It's a long, long race. If you're going to retain an audience, interaction is always uh, a key part of it. it has to be an inter- uh, interactive part of it. Um, but beyond that, that. You're watching it because it's the biggest endurance race in the world, but it's more than that. It's an event, and you've got to get that flavor across to people. So a little bit of silliness is not out of kilter with that broadcast. As long as it's embedded with, there will be people dipping in, dipping out, and you know, trying to keep away from that that rhythm of let's have 15 minutes of highlights at the top of every hour. You know, you will find that you know we were defaulting to rundown in positions, including the classes, uh, bringing people in that were of relevance to those battles, leaning heavily on the professional drivers there to explain some of what was going on uh, with either the racing, whether or not we'd seen an incident, etc. It, it, I'm not going to say it's anything other than mentally very hard work, but everybody in that room is absolutely passionate about what it is we're watching and what it is we're doing. And I hope that shows through. Uh, I'm absolutely passionate about that aspect of the work that I do. And increasingly, I think I said this on air, um, I certainly said it on social media, walking into a studio like that at a live event populated by people with real heritage and knowledge at those events, being able to put on that microphone and interact both with a broadcast audience and a social media audience increasingly is my professional happy place. That's what it is. I love everything I do uh, professionally, 
but I'm never more comfortable than in that environment. And I'm, I, I, you know, it's a conversation I had with Ben Constantius and with Martin Haven and, you know, with those guys, with the likes of um, David Allison, with the likes of, uh, you know, Ollie Gavin and Darren Turner. And for that matter, Alan Manish, when he was doing the broadcast with us, and certainly uh, with Ant Davidson, um, I sort of feel as if you're in a kind of small collective of, of like-minded souls um, that just enjoy what this event adds to them. should say, by the way, one quick addition for uh, Ant Davidson. If you haven't, uh, if you don't follow Ant Davidson on Twitter, by the way, and you're a fan of the currently Elon Musk-owned social media platform, uh, do take a look at the fabulous collection of 143rd models that he completed at Le Mans. Uh, by the way, in that very same aforementioned back of the grandstand um, uh, shop outlets with one of the Toyotas that was missing. And he has a 143rd model of every single vehicle he has ever raced, including the carts. And it's quite stellar stuff. What a pleasure that man has been uh, to be uh, stand alongside or sit alongside at times in those booths. And uh, we did take him back to meet our French family for an evening and uh, – you know, a very ordinary but lovely French family uh, who are well-versed in the Le Mans 24 hours to find that when I turned up for dinner that the guy stepping out the other side of the car was the 2014 FI World Endurance Championship driver's champion. And, Marshall, you couldn't have asked for a better dinner guest. Mm. You really couldn't. Sat there all evening, had an absolute ball, um, was tempted into stories galore, and was just utterly lovely. I love the job I do. Amen. Brother Goodwin. How about last GTE Pro Race at Le Mans? That's a bit of a, well, not unexpected. We've known this no. was going to be the case. We've been headed towards this for a while. But I'm, I'm guessing you've had the same reaction I have, which is one of uh, a bit of sorrow it knowing is. how good gte pro has been for so long not that what's coming next with uh gt3 based content uh is is a negative thing but can we spend a moment or can you share some thoughts on how this uh last uh gte pro race went both from the uh the manufacturer side but even some fun privateer stuff uh as yeah. well this 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 was a pretty good send-off i'd say it it was, and, and I know we're going to talk about the Corvette incident uh, separately, so I'll leave that to one side. But look, first things first, 2011 was when GTE Pro joined the lexicon of uh, the glossary of terms, if you like, of insurance racing. And since then, uh, including the seven cars this year, 142 cars have contested the 24 Hours of Le Mans uh, in you know in, in that uh, what is it eleven years, yeah, um, of a wide variety of makes and models. Of course, Porsche and Ferrari and Aston Martin and Corvette have been the almost ever presence, but beyond that, Ford and Viper and Lotus and I'm sure I'm forgetting others that have been around there. Privateers and you said quite rightly the contribution that privateers have made. You know, with the likes of Flying Lizards back in the day, JMW Motorsports back in the day, their GTM car this year um, that I don't think has ever 
contested GT Pro. But that car, that Ferrari 488, won it in 17 in AM and has contested the race every year since. The same car, six times. Uh, but, you know, Ram Racing for a, for a one-off. The Lotuses from Jet Alliance back in the day. Which, Sounded great. Didn't necessarily yeah. make a lot of speed, but the no. uh, those those Toyota V6s V6. sounded yeah. uh, sweet. But the, it's it's been putting aside the quirks that we had back in the day. The overarching memory for all of us is close, race long, down and dirty battling, and this year we saw again some of that. Um, it's got to be missed. ACO made it reasonably clear um, and then had to make it clear again and clear again because people kept asking the same question uh, about a pro class coming forward. Uh, unless four cars would declare for next year, it would be done after this year. We've still, of course, got the remainder of the World Endurance Championship to go, so three more races to go. But for Le Mans, it's done. Um, and we had a race. Corvette at times dominated. Porsche got into the mix with the initial troubles and then the eventual um, elimination of the, of the Corvette's uh, attack. Ferrari were never really there, but somehow conspired to lead the race. I think some BOP concerns about there. Yeah, I'll, and, I'll, I'll by ask the way, about that in a sec. Okay, I mean, but but you know, a, a big thank you to Bill Riley and to the guys from Be Safe Racing yeah. in. North Carolina for bringing an effort that for whatever reason never really competed and I think they took a bit of a wrong turn uh, in terms of the way in which the car was set up I know they had some reliability issues that cost them track time but boy it was good to see them there because that's always been part of this whether or not it's the Haboto car that was on pole last year whether or not it's WeatherTech Racing have been there we've name checked Flying Lizards Imsa Matmut Felbermar Pro you name it there's a glittering array of cars that have taken part in the race and by the way you want a reminder of absolutely all of them two galleries over the last two days on daily sports car which feature the pictures of uh, the results for every single one of them uh, and there's another piece to come which is a few of the kind of facts and figures behind the class it, it i think a star that burned brightly but not long enough is the way we'll remember gt pro um, I'm sure you, like me, will remember the days when you get the likes of, I don't know, let's, uh, that Jimmy Bruni and Ferrari banging doors with Darren Turner and Aston Martin, Ollie Gavin and a Corvette. They're the glory days for me. And the fact that those kind of battles, Marshall, could just as easily be in the 19th hour, or indeed in the case of Johnny Adam and Jordan Taylor in the 24th hour, um, as it could be into turn one, three, five, nine, or 14. And I hope what we've got coming can match that. I hope it can match that because it's been a huge part of the entertainment factor for the great race. Every single year, I've been handed a microphone and asked to commentate uh, in the latter days for radio and then and more recently in, um, in TV. And it's, What's coming has got big, big racing shoes to fill. Let's talk about the favorite topic of mine, B.O.P.ness. Way! Uh, hey, if you had a Ferrari 488 Evo, yeah. Evo, 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 
you did not necessarily have speedo 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 i mean there's always at least one mark i mean there's multiple marks but there's always at least one mark uh the 24 hours of le mans that uh get beat up side the head by the bad bop stick and uh where would we place ferrari in uh in that conversation I think the answer is, you know, there's been a series of long and I would add very tedious uh, politicking from Ferrari um, and leaning on their drivers to do that that too uh, around balance of performance. We're lacking straight line speed. Uh, it should be a T-shirt. Um, and uh, sad to say, I think in this instance, they were completely correct. They didn't look to have the ultimate pace at any point in the weekend. I think, again, they over-egged the pudding, a peculiarly uh, UK phrase, but they overdid it in terms of their politicking again. And it's a bit like the boy that cries wolf. It happens so often that at some point you're just not going to listen to. And I don't think they were listened to, and I think that did take away something from the battle. You'll recall, Marshall, uh, more than once I've said that in terms of my journalistic output, I resist getting stuck in to balance of performance debates and comments until after a race. And in this instance, uh, there are two aspects to the balance of performance. Um, changes that were made coming into the week, changes that were made within the week that are open to debate and question. One of them was the Ferraris against the Porsches and the Corvettes in particular. And the, sadly, I sort of again sort of think that when you see the Ferraris, the Ferrari complaining about balance of performance, but then at times their pro cars sitting behind the uh the privateer pro car and indeed some amateur cars, at that point you've got to ask yourself whether or not they're overdoing their political sway, if you like. Yeah. But Putting that aside, whatever they were trying to achieve, it didn't work this time. I think they do have a debating point in terms of where those cars were. I simply refuse to believe that a, a mark like Ferrari would throw away the Le Mans 24 hours looking to get a balanced performance break for the remainder of the season. This is the race they would want to win, and I don't think they had the ponies to do it this time. Let's see what else might we delve into how about uh corvette uh oh. t- speaking of knockabout um i have to admit graham the yep. blow from the p2 car um monsieur perotto yeah the 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 hit did not appear to be wickedly hard and yet the reaction from the Corvette and it being moved so swiftly into yep. the barrier, clearly what we saw on TV did not tell the whole picture. Clearly that was a harder hit than it appeared to be, but not the first time we've seen fast no. prototypes beaten up on quick, but not quite as quick GT cars. This just seemed to be... I don't know. There, there were to me there was a sadness of it's, like, it's come that. on, man. It's it's that. I mean, I mean, look, there's nothing deliberate about any aspect of that incident. That's the first thing to say. 
it, for the avoidance of doubt, involved three cars. I think the 47 Algar Pro car, uh, and I believe, and if, if this is incorrect, I apologize, John, I believe John Falb at the wheel of that car at that time. Um, the, the car that went, uh, that was the delayed car that featured Sophia Flush, by the way. Um, Francois Perodo in the number 83, a of course I run uh, Orica, and obviously Alexander Sims in the 64 car that was chasing down the GTE Pro leader at that time and looking set to retake the lead. Uh, coming out of first chicane, um, three wide, the Algar Pro car to the inside. Um, and I'd like to speak to John and, and understand because it, it's all very well me putting words in his mouth. He had a car in front of him, was clearly looking not to be boxed in there. Uh, and I wonder whether or not he was absolutely aware that the 83 car had got the better run out of the chicane and was where he was in relation to the 47. It did look, if you look at the, the head-on uh, in HD, as if John was looking and I'm not sure had seen that the car was there. He certainly jinked to the right. That got the reaction from Francois Perodo, who did, it was basically like a concertina effect, wasn't it? And then there was that impact with Alexander Sims. Might be interesting to find out from Alexander, uh, who, by the way, possibly wasn't even aware the 47 car was where it was in relation to those two, um, because he was there basically staying out of trouble uh, at that point. Whether or not part of what exacerbated that incident was him anticipating the hit, because he's a driver of you know, exceptional skill, um, will have seen the Orica move, albeit only for a moment, and maybe an additional steering input from Alexander to try to avoid it was the thing that finally sent it over the edge. The reality is the fault was with the driver who impacted the Corvette. That was Francois Perodo. Um, have seen a, a variety of commentary um, on this one. First things first, if you're in that group of people, mercifully small, that was pointing to the the fact that that uh, Orica is fielded by AF Corsa, that that in some way might have something to play in the GTE Pro battle, get in the sea. Absolute rubbish. Um, I'm lucky enough to have a professional relationship with Francois Perodo. He is one of the nicest, most honest, most well-grounded human beings in uh, in the WEC and has been since he started. He's very humble about his own abilities here. He's very ambitious about his, his racing, but not in any way ruthless. We saw immediately that he got out of the car what his reaction was going down with Amato Ferrari to make a fulsome um, and profound apology to everybody in the Corvette garage who was still, I think, still in shock at that point. I can tell you that uh, there will have been tears shed by Francois. He will have hated what that... He he knows what that meant to that team. He is involved with not just his own racing, but the careers of young drivers, with a range of interests up and down that paddock. Um, it's not by accident that two of the drivers in his... The other two drivers in his car, and it is his programme, are very much expected to be part of the Ferrari hypercar programme. And he's effectively helping to fund 
part of that. He's also involved with uh, ownership and funding for at least one other major project in that paddock because he's got, uh, you know, personal emotional investment in the career of another young driver. So absolutely racing incident, catastrophic for Corvette. And the worst part of that, MP, is that they were looking as if that was a race they could and should have won. I mean, I'm not sure if you're watching at the time. I'm not sure whether or not Motor Trend got this part of the commentary. I was literally reading out the statement from Corvette about the confirmed retirement of 63 when it happened. And, you know, there are moments in in covering these races, and this race in particular, where you're sort of lost for words. It's, It's just a spectacular coming together of circumstance that defies logic in the moment. Uh, for Corvette fans, and they are a multitude, uh, my profound, you know, uh, regret that we were robbed of the race we should have had. Um, oh, there's one other quick thing, by the way, that's just suddenly shot into my mind, which is there was a picture in the immediate aftermath of the AF Corsa garage with Alipé Guidi, a driver as able and as professional as any in that paddock showing what every professional driver would have felt in that moment which was what the hell happened there and in the background a young lady um clearly lost in the moment she's in the air of course garage she may very well have been the loved one of one of those drivers i don't know who that young lady was who was clearly expressing the delight in the fact that that meant that the position of AF Corsa and Ferrari was more secure because the threat had gone. I saw that. I've, I've seen a lot of hate for that young lady on social media. Again, get in the sea. You know, ultimately, we are. I, I've only ever once or twice been in the situation, MP, and you've been in the situation a lot more than I have, of being a part of a racing team at a big race. You will, I'm sure, confirm it is a fundamentally different emotional state than it would be as a journalist, photographer, um, in my case, as a broadcaster, where you've got that overview. It's a fundamentally different thing. We saw the same kind of immediacy of reaction, by the way, um, from the Porsche crew in 2016 when Kaz Nakajima had the most heartbreaking moment I can possibly imagine uh, in... uh, Oh, that's mine. See, it's Kaz. Call, hey, Kaz, great. Thanks for calling in and confirming you agree. Yeah. But it, it's, again, leave it out. You know, it's it's an emotional reaction to a moment. That's all it is. And, and without the kind of the external information to develop an opinion, just, just stow your opinion. But, you know, expressing hate towards, you know, an individual, the you know, the background of whom I don't know, therefore the vast majority of people out there don't know. Um, and ugh, wrong. I mean, what, what my overriding emotion after it was sadness because we've been robbed of that race. Sadness because Corvettes um, in their final race in GTE Pro had had a, an opportunity to take a, a win or at least a fight taken from them. Uh, the drama, it'll be in highlights, lowlights, reels. Of course, it will forevermore. 
Uh, but I felt very bad indeed for absolutely everybody concerned. And that, by the way, includes everybody else in GTE Pro because they wanted the fight. Mm. That's the key here. They wanted that fight. The final thing, though, to say about GTE Pro is congratulations to Jimmy Bruni. He's waited a long time for that win with Porsche. It means that he is the driver that's won more than any any other in GT Pro. That's an adds a third. It means he stands now alongside Daniel Serra with the record of having won it for two different factories, and Jimmy's case for Ferrari and for Porsche, in Daniel's case for, uh, for Ferrari and Aston Martin. Um, but he becomes the single, the only three-time winner in GT Pro. He had a GT2 win before that. Um, congratulations to Ricard Leitz. He deserves a win. And absolute congratulations to Fred Makivicki, who astonishingly, that was his first win uh, in GT Pro or at Le Mans. And uh, a driver that's done service for, again, in his case, in this case, Porsche and Aston Martin. Um, they were deserving winners, but it could have, should have, would have been a much better fight. Indeed. Let's see. Where else should we go here? <clears throat> uh, what about, I mean, if I'm trying to think of the front of the fight mm. of which there were not many, many vehicles in that hypercar class fight, Alpine yeah. seemed yeah. to be bopped in a way where, I mean, granted it was the Toyota show and who might, yeah. Uh, finished third in class there. The Glickenhauses, uh, I would say, did well uh, yep. for what you would expect from a manufacturer working with a budget that's approximately one quarter of 1% the size yes. of, of uh, Toyota Gazoo Racings. But uh, the, the Alpine's lack of ability to play for anything meaningful was it all BOP, do you think, Graham? Or do you think they just missed setup or combination? Uh, no, I mean, it, they were struggling for straight line speed. We saw that at the start of the race when they dropped back. And, and I, th I can't remember how long it took but to get past a P2 car. It shouldn't be like that. Um, they were BOP'd before the race, lost, I think, uh, 16 horsepower. Um, bearing in mind the margins are pretty slim at the moment between hypercar and P2, despite the stratification debate that goes on there and again in common with what happened with ferrari i just think they well let's hope they got it wrong because if they got it they feel they got it right then something else is wrong um it marks the last time we will ever see a car designed as an lmp1 at the le mans 24 hours they went on to have a numerous other issues that would have dropped them down anyway they never made it back up the order um where they really should have been in that top five. Uh, but for Alpine, pretty sad end to that part of their story. They'll be back next year in LMP2 and back in 24 with a hypercar class entry with an LMPH car. But they were out of it before we'd really finished lap one. And, you know, I hope there wasn't politics involved in that. Um, there's nothing that, that suggested that that Alpine should not have been in a five-car fight at, at times. And the reality was we didn't have a five-car fight. We had a brief three-car fight um, with one of the Glickenhouses, but it didn't last long enough. And the reality is it does go to show, doesn't it, what the scale of the balanced performance task that lies ahead for the hypercar class for uh, the ACO um, in particular here, because... 
the moment. We're not aware of any LMH cars that are going to go to IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. Uh, we had a few pointers uh, while we've been away with me sniffing around and finding out a little more about what was going on uh, with Tota and Lexus. I can tell you, MP, that um, it was certainly – there was certainly been a investigation from – the Tota Lexus brands in the US, whether or not having a GRO10 GRO uh, in IMSA racing has been looked at more than once, I believe. We know that Lexus have looked at LMDH more than once, I believe. Belief is at the moment that neither of those things is going to happen, and we're now waiting for, as we have been from the start, uh, whatever emerges for the, the new products in GT3, for GTD and GTD Pro. That looks to be the direction that brand is taking. But uh, at the moment, Toyota have an edge. Next race, we see the Peugeot for the first time. That'll be kind of an interesting head-to-head. After that, I'm pretty convinced that if the test program goes well, we will see the Porsche LMDH at Bahrain. So that should be the global race debut of that car. Um, And then we've got Ferrari to follow uh after that much more to say about that by the way in the second of this week's shows but for now toyota most certainly know one thing the days of them having pretty unfettered political clout uh in that process are just about done interesting uh let's see what about the future of glickenhaus graham what do you think Mm. uh what do you think might be Jim's, um, let's see. We know what Jim's been able to do in the WEC. Yep. We, well, we read stories on occasion. I'll admit I probably haven't looked beyond the headlines. There are a couple of websites out there that just all they want is salacious TMZ <laughs> clickbait bull crap. Uh, and so... Uh, the the stockpile of Glickenhaus is going to sue everybody. Well, not everybody, yeah. just IMSA and whatnot. And obviously, it's Jim's. If Jim wants to, then that's his thing. But um, what do you think? He's it's flying like over. Run. He's currently Strafing flying run. over again. Man, um, uh, what do you what think, think the future holds for Jim? The the this rocking awesome uh hypercar that he's built more weckety weck with a lot of fierce competition coming in imsa yep. lawsuits what's going on um I, I wish you'd stop with the lawsuit bit to be honest with you i think I, i'd like to think there's a way forward for him if the rhetoric stops um i'd like to think that that car could find a home in perhaps an endurance program with imsa um I think he he knows the bell is tolling. Before we get into that bit, though, can we have a positive moment for Glickenhaus? Of course. On the podium. Uh, looked dazed to be there, to be honest with you, did Jim. Um, and what a delight to see that. That's a, that's a huge story. Uh, one of the cars made its only appearance in a Le Mans race in the garage early on in the race. So before we get into results and before we get into the future, let's just think about that for a minute. That's four race appearances from Glickenhaus, two two car appearances from Glickenhaus. And in the race itself, one car has been in the garage once. That 
apart from anything else, is astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. Whatever you think about the effort, whatever you think about the rule set, whatever you think about POP, whatever you think about Jim Glickenhouse and his online presence, whatever you think, please take a moment um, and just think about what it takes to achieve that. So full kudos to Glickenhouse, uh, to Jim and Jesse Glickenhouse. Full kudos to Podium Engineering, who uh, designed and built the car. Full kudos to Team Yoast, who have been sorting out the technical and logistical support for that effort, because that is stone-cold amazing. That right there is a world-class performance. Um, both cars finished ahead of the P2s. Trust me, that's not easy. Yes, there's this. Yeah, they've got a performance advantage inbuilt, but to finish ahead of the LMP2s, particularly from what I'm increasingly dubbing the super teams, is no mean feat. They are machines, uh, and I mean that both on track, uh, on pit wall, and in the garage. You're machines. crowing about it, even. I am Sorry, crowing. I can resist. Hit it. <laughs> you got crows um, in the background. But, but to, to get a car on the Le Mans podium overall, and frankly to do it in a year where the crowd was there and he could enjoy the full glare of that, I am utterly and completely delighted for Jim Glickenhaus and for Jesse Glickenhaus. That right there is the dream, isn't it? You've got to ask yourself, though, is that the moment at which he decides we don't have to do much more of this? There is not much more that can be achieved. We're not going to beat Ferrari and Peugeot and Porsche and et cetera, et cetera. We might have a chance against one of those if they have a bad day, but with the field in depth that you're going to get... I do wonder whether or not that's the beginning of the end for that program um, for a full season, at least. I hope not, but the buying power that you've got with those big brands coming, is there a place for the little team that could? I, I'm not sure there is. I hope there's a future for that program. Um, I hope we see the Glickenhaus in GT3 in future. Uh, whatever happens next... Uh, you know, and I, I certainly I'm aware that there is a question about certainly the Japanese race um, in particular because the logistics there are huge. There are major issues in terms of cost to do that race. Visas are not simple and everything is expensive. And it may be that he's reached a common understanding with um, uh, with the LMEM that that might be a, a place that's, that they will accept that they don't want to expose that team to that level of uh, of expense. We'll have both Peugeots there. We'll have both uh, Toyotas there. That gives us a field with the Alpine of five cars. Um, I, I wait with bated breath to hear what Jim will tell us about moving forward. I think he's at the stage now where he spent what he wants to spend. If there's going to be a future for that car and for that team, it's going to be with people investing in that product. And as for him, sir, I'd say this. I get it. I understand both sides of this argument. I hope that Jim steps away from the legal rhetoric. I hope that him, sir, see that there's an opportunity here for a homegrown enterprise. I'd like to think there's a place somewhere for that in that great big product. And if, if they can find the space to have a quiet conversation in a quiet room 
with no one shouting and no one interfering and no one needs to know what's discussed in that room, but come out and find a solution that means that audiences stateside get to cheer on a home team. Uh, I think that'd be cool. I hope it's not the end. I don't think it's quite the end, uh, but I wonder whether or not I can, I or anybody else can put Scuderia Cameron Glickenhouse in a likely column for full season effort for WC next year. Yeah, I'd love myself some Glickenhouses. Love nothing more as well to see those cars in IMSA's GTP class. Stylistically, though, Graham, you mentioned quietly, quietly, quietly. That is IMSA's way. That is the culture led by Jim France. Um, That's always been the way. That's not going to change. Jim not a quietly kind of guy and that's not a bad thing i mean i love <laughs> i love the jim glickenhouses more than i do many others in sports car racing because i'd rather have a guy who's a little bit bombastic and is his own person and says what he feels than folks who just you know swallow the mic and say nothing and want to fade into the background but there is a key point here of you can go the legal route. I don't know if that's going to end up in anything that's the least bit positive, but knowing the pride and might contained within NASCAR and its uh, sports car series that it owns, IMSA, the one that was founded by the France family and the Bishops back in the late 1960s, but this all done with funding and backing from the Francis slash NASCAR, like, this isn't a fly-by-night championship over here. This no. isn't something that is going to be easily swayed in any direction. And although it would be going against character type, I think the calmer and more reconciliatory type of, of conversations that might be held, uh, the, the better odds of something positive happening, if there's yeah. a chance of it happening at all. But the Indeed. big, loud, uh, litigious direction... That's everything that NASCAR slash IMSA isn't, uh, but they I they are not the types to uh, shrink away and shirk away from a fight. So I just hope it never gets there. Yeah, you be both. I, I I'd like to see this with a. It's already at this point. That's a that's a fantastic result and a happy, hopefully not ending. However, this finishes. I'd like that effort to be remembered for some from efforts to be lauded rather than it ending messily with paperwork in a courtroom let's go with one or two final things to close here graham so the race was i don't know what the percentage would be but about 40 ish percent uh areca 07 lmp2s um you would think all well all areca 07s are created equally but I guess you might think that after being run for so many years and with so much setup knowledge that uh, we would have a P2 class that was pretty much all stuck together and glued together. Um, I, what We did have at least one Liget in there that I uh, recalled yeah. seeing. But yeah. uh, you would think, boy, this is just going to be a rolling herd of, of 07s <laughs> because everyone's going to be so matchy-matchy on setups and performance and Oh, we, we destroyed any notion of that, right? Boy, talk about disparate uh, performances uh, across a big old class with everybody effectively using the same car. Yeah, absolutely right. And 
I think we are entering the era, the era in uh, LMP2 of you know, what I said earlier in the broadcast is the super teams. And what do I mean by that? I mean teams that have got the engineering strength in depth to squeeze the very best out of the you – know, get as much blood out of the Orica stone as they possibly can. It's not by accident that the same teams keep rising to the top. And some of that is driving talent, but not all of it. Uh, Jota dominated this race, no doubt about it whatsoever. Um, but just looking at the, the results in front of me here, two cars of those 27 on the same lap. This is a spec car, okay? Put aside the CD Sports Ligier, which was, you know, um, I would put the CD Sport effort down as being um, a happening. It was an experiential uh, effort for them. 26 Orica started, two finished on that lead lap. Beyond that, there were a fair number more, I think it was four or five on the lap behind that. But if you look down the names of those teams, Jota, Premier Orland, that's the Premier uh, team, um, long established in single-seater, middle and junior formulas. Jota with a second car. TDS Racing, who've been a firm part of LMP2 almost from the beginning. Uh, Team Penske need no introduction, a great result from them. And then United Autosports, before you start getting into the the, the kind of somewhat, uh, you know, Johnny-come-latelys with Cool Racing Edict Sports, it's the big teams that's featured at the top again. And it does seem this it's kind of quite weird that we've had a year where United Autosports dominated, followed by a year when WRT dominated, and this year at Le Mans, Jota absolutely dominated. Um, and it got to be uh, because they've just executed a plan and a strategy, but more particularly because the technical aspects of that effort were just correct. You know, and by the way, great stuff from all three of their drivers. Antonio Felix da Costa, Will Stevens were awesome. Uh, Roberto Gonzalez, their gentleman driver, although, you know, a gentleman driver that's got one hell of a racing background to him, again, put in his six hours uh, in exemplary fashion. It's going to be, it's difficult to beat these teams. And you've got to ask yourself here, MP, is this simply about those teams looking to take away a class title or is that these teams looking to leave a massive calling card with the prospective programs they're looking to try to attract in the next year, two years, three years. I think it's a bit of both. Can't argue that at all, brother. <sighs> yeah. I can tell you one thing I'm looking forward to with next year's uh, edition of Le Mans. I know it's not going to be massively or radically changed numerically, mm-hmm. but I do... I can't wait for the hypercar class to have a decent number of additional hypercars yeah. to then, yeah. I would hope, reduce the number of LMP2s. Now, again, P2 provided has provided great uh, combat, great everything. But, yeah, when the world's greatest endurance race is, I know 40% isn't half, but it feels like it's not too far away from half, dominated by a single chassis uh effectively a spec uh car that just does not that doesn't feel like Lamont to me so any reduction of this 
overwhelming swarm of, of the same P2 cars being run by everybody, by bespoke custom new manufacturer uh, hypercars, that's a thing I'm looking forward to. That, I think, you know, look, this balance has been tipped massively in the favor of P2 because of the shrinkage in the top class. Totally understand why. I'm just looking forward to hopefully a little bit more of numeric balance being restored and more variety for us to enjoy from 2023 on. Well, let's put it this way. I mean, for next year already, what we know uh, in terms of factory cars that are more or less guaranteed, nine. Put aside what Jim Glickenhouse may decide to do for one moment, nine. So it's nine without any privateers. And from what we believe is going on, if the supply chain can hold it and the commercial situation improves, the inevitability is that that will be into double figures with privateer cars coming and anything else that might come from the United States. Uh, we won't see the BMWs. We will not see the Acuras. We will, I believe, see additional Cadillacs. We may see an additional Porsche uh, in the top class. I think that one's up for grabs. I think anybody looking for four is going to be unlucky uh, in terms of the factory cars. But I think it wouldn't be out of kilter to look at 12 to 15 cars in a top class. So three times the number, but the difference coming into next year is that's three times the number with cars at pretty much all factory quality and of the hybridized variety, which means that whilst, yes, there's a disparity between the four-wheel drive cars in LMH and the two-wheel drive cars of LMDH, and that's going to have to work its way through the BOP um process to get to the stage where everybody's going to reasonably happy and i'm sure we'll have stories to talk about on the weekend sports cars a year hence to, to to examine that but every sign is that double figures more of cars in the top class are en route for 2023 and then beyond that you've got two more factories that have now committed with lamborghini and alpine for the following year so I think you're right. I think we're probably going to be looking there at uh, LMP2 class high teens, maybe. Yeah. Um, which is enough. It's enough. Um, I do think maybe a trick might have been missed. I uh, uh, the the weeks where we didn't put in a uh, weekend sports cars, I chucked in a, an opinion piece that was looking to catch the attention of the ACO that said basically maybe you should consider delaying the introduction of the new p2 cars to assist the issues at the moment with the economy and the supply chain and maybe we should take a radical look at lmp2 and consider taking it out of the wc altogether mm. uh, my, uh, my view there mp is if you put it in as the uh, keep it as a top class of the european Le Mans series and the asia Le Mans series you don't have to stratify the cars against the hypercars anywhere other than the Le Mans 24 hours, that means the cars can go back to their full rich 600 horsepower awesomeness. Uh, it means that the drivers funding those efforts get to experience the cars as they were intended, which is becoming a bit of an issue for some of those teams. It means you're not exposing those teams and those drivers to the full cost of a full flyaway FIWC, and that's going to be very expensive. Remember, the numbers we've currently got in the WC are artificially assisted by the fact that we're still at six races and that the, the 
uh, that half those races are on the continent of Europe. Um, so the costs are going to go up very significantly for the WEC. I think that's going to mean that it's trickier to find the continual flow of people prepared to fund the kind of level of LMP2 programs we've seen in the WEC to this point. So that was my proposed solution. It looks as if that's not going to be the case. WC will continue with P2. We will see the transition to the new cars from 2025, and we can talk a bit more about that in the second show this week. Well, we need to head out the door here shortly, my friend, for Keno. Sure. So of a couple of – what do you want to pick for a closing topic? I, mean, I don't know, driver mm-hmm. rankings, reliability, like we're um, all yours to pick uh, how you take us well, home, brother. Look, reliability was still a record number of cars finished the um, the Mon 24 Hours this year. Uh, just checking out the actual number, it's 50-odd. Anyway, it was 53 cars finished. One was um, an incomplete final lap. The number 60 car did not complete the final lap with an accident. Uh, and then we had DNFs. Of the DNFs, I think I'm right all bar two were accidents um and one of them uh was is it one two or three? It's, no it's, it's three three cars that suffered um issues that were not accident related one was suspension that was the corvette and there were two engine issues both for ferraris the inception car and the spirit of race 71 car both suffered um terminal engine problems uh, astonishing reliability through the field. It does mean, we've talked about this before, MP, that the 24 hours of Le Mans has become a very different sort of endurance race. There were some issues around, uh, some common uh, themes. been noticing this year a fair number of problems with the left door on the Oricas. You know, yet again, at least one team that suffered a failed kind of uh, door latch there. And again, we're allowed to do a driver change without changing that door, which surprised me greatly. Not the first time we've seen it. Uh, we had issues with front left uh, tyres delaminating on a number of LMP2 cars. My guess is if I were to ask the Goodyear tyre technicians, they would tell you that that was something where um, the teams were operating out of the, the suggested parameters uh, for those cars. Um, we have, what else did we have? We had uh, coil um, packs failing on a couple of Gibsons, which again is something we've not seen. Put those aside, uh, astounding reliability from the cars. All the kind of thoughts that uh, after a couple of tricky races for Toyota, we might see those cars being something other than ironclad, gone. Um, great win from them. Uh, you know, faultless stuff. Uh, they were able to push hard. We heard that going into the into the night with Seb Boemi complaining that with the advantage they had, they shouldn't be pushing as hard. Uh, apparently, his teammates in the other car didn't agree with him. So we, we did have uh, you know real pace uh, through that race. And I think, right, the fastest lap came, I think, in the 23rd hour from Pachito Lopez. Mm. So they were chasing hard to the very end. I'm not sure we're going to get that kind of race next year because those cars are going to be very, very new. And there's a big part of me, MP, that hopes we don't, that hopes we do get a race where we'll hear the track announcer, Bruno van der Stick's voice rise several octaves and uh, multiple decibels, uh, regular periods of time, and that we will get a race where you're going to be looking 
for the opportunity to have pace and reliability and that sometimes that doesn't come um it's, it's endurance not, racing that's the is. thing that i miss most that's it the, exactly the, right the question of whether you can endure it's become you such it? a non-factor a non-element that yeah it's not as if i wish bad outcomes on anybody but yes no. the fact that you go uh, barring really strange things everyone's going to finish that doesn't crash uh yeah. that that takes out a lot of the intrigue for me as well i, I tend to agree i think that's a good way to wrap it you uh, know MP for this we one. should also uh there's one other thing we should mention sure. uh Soros. oh really oliver Trewavas, who rode yeah. his bicycle from the UK oh he did i, I apologize yes in an amazing gesture uh, of a, a grand amazing gesture of kindness uh, to support my wife and i like uh, we've never met oliver's listened to the show for a long time submitted questions for a long time but um since we haven't done the show for a little bit I probably should have mentioned this out of, out of just pure gratitude uh, to open. So I apologize, but Graham, I mean, I don't even know how to respond to this because it's just such a fantastical thing that he did. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, by the way, I gather Oliver appeared briefly on the, uh, the TV stream and uh, was there as he would have loved to have been there amongst the fan base and amongst his, some of his mates, I'm sure uh, on the spectator banks. <sighs> You know what, when, in this case, you and Chabral, or in our case in the past, some of the travails that we've had as a family, where people step up and show that all the bullshit that we've actually had to deal with in the world over the last few years, whether it's politics, whether or not it's, you know, the other stuff that's being thrown at us, geopolitics at the moment is another major issue, the cost of living, all of that, that kind of thing just gives you hope, doesn't it? Gives you another boost that somebody out there in that moment was thinking of somebody other than themselves. And Oliver, I've met Oliver. Oliver is a lovely guy, okay? An absolutely lovely guy. Deeply imbued in his love for the sport and of the things that surround it and the sense of community around that sport. But thank you, Oliver, for just being one of those guys that's in the moment thought here's something i want to do anyway what can i do within that that challenge i've set myself to make life just that tiny bit better for some somebody else rocky agrees totally uh, um um that's it really thank you for all of you by the way that've interacted with us on the weekend sports cars and you get that opportunity again next week in a, a return to our regular programming um but in particular um, with what it is we do with the rest of our lives, that the Racer Notebook, I just think, is just the, the best format. And, you know, I know you wouldn't have wished to have inherited that in the way that you have, Marshall, but suffice to say, you've already put your mark on it. And uh, the way in which people interact positively with that part of life, I'm sure, much as, you know, it is, a, it is something you do for work, I've little doubt that you enjoy that as much as you enjoy the interaction with people's thoughts on the weekend sports cars. Thanks as well, by the way, to the people who interacted with us and with me through 
the week, and in particular the race at the 24 Hours of Le Mans, that lifts me on a minute-by-minute basis to, to, to watch what you're watching, to see what you're seeing, to, you know, to, to give you guys a sense of belonging as well. Uh, that, again, is something that's, that, that lifts us all. And, yeah, um, your words to say to, to wrap that bit up before I take us home, mate. Yeah, just, I mean, Oliver, insane to think that you rode from the UK to Le Mans uh, all in an effort to raise funds for my wife and I and our ongoing medical bills and everything else that we're doing. So I look forward, although it would be hilarious for folks to see, but I look forward to maybe being able to do something similar, ride a bicycle, uh, maybe just drive a car from point A to point B to raise money for somebody. That might be a little bit more realistic, but yeah, I look forward to getting past all this. Um, my wife and I obviously look forward to getting past all of it and uh, being in a position to just repay folks uh, with doing more charitable endeavors of our own uh, to help others in need. So, yeah, it's just uh, I don't even know how to process this, Graham. Okay, listen, let's wrap it up for now. Um, at some point, I'll introduce you to young Oliver because uh, he's a fine young man. And we hope we'll have that opportunity to do that and everybody gets together for the centenary. Yes, and hopefully they've enjoyed the number two to number 10, maybe number 50th rank uh, listener (laughs) interaction uh, sports car podcast. Let's do that thing. I'll say goodnight. It's goodnight from Marshall Pruitt across in the United States of America. It's goodnight from me here as the sun begins to go down in the south of England. Um, it is with thanks again to Cooper Tires, to the Justice Brothers and TorontoMotorsports.com who continue to back this fabulous endeavour that is called the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. This has been part one of a two-part this week, the Week in Sports Cars podcast. We will see you later this week.